Last week kicked off a brand new series called Identity Crisis, asking a significant question, getting really introspective, and that question is, who am I? Like, who am I really? Now, that's not always a good time to spend that time kind of looking deep within, like, who has God created me to be? But we have to have absolute clarity that leads to conviction and contentment with who God creates us to be, or else we're going to sign up for a roller coaster, exhausting life, trying to perform our way into the acceptance of the people around us. What we looked at last week, the significance of our identity and the, the reality that we've been made in the image of God. God has handcrafted us in such a way where there's no one else like you, he made you on purpose for his purpose. Now, today's message, we're going to add that additional layer onto the proper understanding of our identity. I want to give you a heads up. This is one of the most simplistic messages you'll ever hear. However, if we don't properly understand this basic truth that we're looking at today, there are extreme ramifications on a daily basis as we just constantly wonder uh, throughout life, kind of going wherever the wind blows and whoever accepts us and not really being anchored in who we are in God. Several years ago, a guy named Thomas Merton put it this way when you think about what's at stake. He said, sooner or later, we must distinguish between what we are not and what we are. He said, we must accept the fact that we are not what we would like to be. We must cast off our false exterior self like the cheap and showy garment that it is. We must find our real self in all its elemental poverty, but also in its great and very simple dignity, created to be the child of God and capable of loving with something of God's own sincerity and his unselfishness. I love that perspective. I love that vision for what's at stake and what God has called us to. So again, we ask this week, who are you really? Who are you and what determines your significance? So we looked at last week, what we, the avenues in which we go down in life in, in, a, in order to find significance reveal right, what we really think about ourselves, what we attach ourselves to, well, how we define our significance. So I want to look briefly at a very unique scripture that maybe you haven't thought of through this lens, but it's a moment in the life of Jesus himself. And when you read scripture, if, if, you read it, if you're reading it kind of with fresh eyes, right, and, and for those of you that are maybe reading it for the first time, you probably think of this question, and, and we lose sight of this if you've grown up in the church, uh, how much gap there is in Jesus' life, right? We read about when he was 12 with his parents, then we don't read anything about him until he's age 30, and then there's only three years, right? Most of scripture, the New Testament, is uh, his ministry beginning at age 30 in just that short amount of time. But what happens before he does anything miraculous, before he begins that ministry, is a very definitive moment. Take a, mo take a look at the moment in the life of Christ and what his identity was defined by. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, now keep in mind Jesus wasn't baptized for the same reason that we were baptized. It's a posture of submission to his father, but I think it's also that he could identify with us. But Jesus was baptized, that is significant. Verse 16, as soon as he was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Pretty unbelievable moment. Now notice verse 17. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. 
This is very interesting, simply based on the timing in which this happened. When Jesus was baptized, God, his father, said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. At this point in Jesus' life, when he was baptized, he hadn't really done anything, which that's pretty interesting. I mean, we talk, well, he did something, right? His dad was a carpenter. Obviously, he lived a life of integrity. He was perfect. He was sinless. But he hadn't really entered into the, the main part of why he came to earth. But don't miss the fact that before Jesus did anything that would warrant earning approval, he was shaped by God, his Father's declaration. You are my son. I love you. I'm pleased with you. See, his identity was defined by his relationship to his Father. His identity was defined by his relationship to his Father, and the identity Jesus was given by his Father was, you are loved. You're loved. And Jesus made his father proud because of who he was and who he belonged to. Like, that's enough. Again, this is so basic, but we live in opposition of this reality every single day when we're trying to earn the approval, the affirmation, the acceptance of the world around us because this isn't enough. And so naturally, I thought back to when our son Levi was born. When he came into this world, we didn't say, all right, let's see what he can do. That probably wouldn't be starting in the right way. Like, all right, if we based our level of love based on what he could do, let's, he's not going to be real successful at earning our approval or, or love, is he? He's just going to sit there. Well, he, can't even, he can't even turn over. Right? He can't even, we're talking to him. He's not talking back to us. Oh, now he's crying. Now he's crying forever. Oh, man, I think we got a bad egg. This isn't really working out. I thought this would be a lot more fun, right? This is a little too close to home for Eric McDonald today. He's living this out, right? But we don't say, all right, let's see what he can do. What he does, don't miss this, what he does or does not do will never change my love for him. There might be days where I don't really like him because of how he's acting. He might not like me. There is nothing, I pray, that he could do or not do that would ever change my love for him. Because I've loved him before he has done anything because of who he is. He's my son. Now think about this. Where does that capacity for unconditional love come from? This is just the beauty of Scripture, right? This isn't like, all right, here's a message for those of us that get it, for those of us that believe in God. If you're here at church for the very first time, and you don't even, you're skeptical of God, you don't believe in God, you already get this, especially if you're a parent. Where does the capacity for that unconditional love come from? How can we even begin to love in such a way? Because what I just described is true for believer and non-believer both. It's because we have a Father in God who first loved us. Again, last week we talked about we're made in his image, therefore we have the capacity to love. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Now, that's not just a command, it's a revelation of our capacity for love. I mean, let's stop and think about just our intuition. Why is it that we're wired in such a way to be inclined to love someone like that? It's because someone first loved us. And we were made in that someone's image. So how does God feel about you? How does God feel about you? Now, a message like this hits in several hundred different ways. Some of you are like, yeah, okay, yeah, I feel, feel good about God. I think he feels good about me. But some of you, when I ask that question, that's a very difficult question if you're taking some time to look within. How does God feel about you? Do you know that God's love for you has nothing to do with your behavior? His love for you has nothing to do with your behavior. Until we truly believe that nothing can separate us from God's love, Romans chapter 8, nothing we can do or fail to do, we will remain spiritual infants. 
believing that we can actually earn God's approval and love. And all of us are inclined, right? We want to be good enough. We want to, God to look at us and be approving of us, but oftentimes we lead with our behavior and we get it wrong. That's an exhausting life, and all of us have examples of that, a life lacking peace and a life full of religion instead of relationship. God is not about a system, right, where we operate the right way so that he can say, okay, I love you. No, he shows up and meets us right where we are as we are. His primary aim is relationship. So again, today's message is about as simple as they come. What we're talking about is maybe something you've heard your entire life if you've gone to church. But the way in which we live and the way in which we look at ourselves doesn't reflect that we actually believe it, right? We grew up singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. Do you? I mean, the way in which we live reflects that we don't actually know. It's not deeply ingrained in who we are. If we say that we know God loves us, why are we still so driven by the approval of others? Why is our identity so fragile? It's standing constantly on shifting sand, trying to gain the approval of someone who is approving us based on our exterior and what we're producing. Well, here's why. Here's our motivation oftentimes. It's Satan's lie. He's going to come after your identity. He's wanting to question who you really are. Satan's lie is this. Self-worth equals your performance plus others' opinions. If you believe that your self-worth depends on your performance in life plus what other people are speaking into your life, that's exhausting, signing up for a roller coaster of a life. So I want to take some time, right? I said we were going to get introspective, and so I want to use a reference I've used since grad school. Uh, I got my degree in counseling way back when, and my counseling supervisor at the time, Regina Green, uh, gave me this book called The Search for Significance. I've used this as a reference for the last uh, 20 years or so. It has different assessments in there, and so I was like, hey, we're just going to do this on a Sunday morning. Here's how it goes. I'm, I'm going to read 10 statements, and uh, this is the part where I would encourage you to either grab your cell phone or grab, uh, you can even grab the Connect card, right? And write on that your, your score. You have to promise to fill out the rest of the information, of course, right? I'm making a deal here. And uh, you're going to rank uh, number one through seven each of these 10 statements. And then at, at the end of that, you're going to add up and you're going to see what your score is. And then we're going to kind of interpret this. And so what this is is a fear of rejection test, a fear of rejection assessment. So on the screen, we're going to kind of put the scale. Number one, when I read this statement, if it describes, yes, that I feel like that or that is me always, that would be number one. Seven would be never, right? That's never applicable to my life. Four would be sometimes, and then you got everything in between, right? So one is always, seven's never, four is sometimes, everything else in between. All right, here's the first one. I avoid certain people. If that always describes you, that's number one. If that never describes you, that's number seven. Four would be sometimes. I avoid certain people. Number two. When I sense that someone might reject me, I become nervous and anxious. Number one, if that is always true. Seven, if it's never. Four, sometimes. Number three, I am uncomfortable around those who are different from me. Number one, always. Seven, never. Four, sometimes. Number four, it bothers me when someone is unfriendly to me. It bothers me when someone is unfriendly to me. Is that number one, always, seven, never, somewhere in between? Next one, I am basically shy and unsocial. Shy isn't bad, right? But if it's shy and unsocial, I'm deliberately not choosing to engage in the world around me. Is that number one, always, 
Seven never, four sometimes. Next one, I am critical of others. Number one, always. Seven, never, four, sometimes. Right? This, this is interesting, interesting when you start connecting these dots. Why is it that I'm so critical of others? Could it be that deep down I really just, I fear rejection myself? Next one, I find myself trying to impress others, right? You're deliberately paying attention to when other people are around and wanting to kind of perform in a certain way. Number one, always. Seven, never. Somewhere in between. Next one, I become depressed when someone criticizes me. Someone says something critical to you. Right? Does that get you down? Does that ruin your day or your week? Number one, always. Seven, never. Next one, I always try to determine what people think of me. Right? You're always, based on who's around, like how do they feel about me? I'm always trying to determine what people think of me. Number one, always. Seven, never. Somewhere in between. Last one, I don't understand people and what motivates them. Right, that's, right, it's kind of stressful. Like, I can't figure out why people are wired, what, what, what motivates them. Right? We're not really, again, in tune with the secureness of, of who we are. Number one, always, seven, never, somewhere in between. I don't understand people and what motivates them. Now, go ahead and add those up. Those of you that did it in your head, congratulations. Hopefully, uh, you're accurate. I went to Bible college, so I couldn't do that, you know. We didn't have math. That's what I mean. We didn't have math. Let's go ahead and add, get that total number. I'm going to read the score breakdown straight from the book Search for Significance. All right, everybody got it? All right, here we go. If your score lands in that top bracket, top bracket being 57 to 70, here we go. God has apparently given you a very strong appreciation for his love and unconditional acceptance. You seem to be freed from the fear of rejection that plagues most people. You're feeling pretty good about yourself. Wow, congratulations. You're like, I didn't really need to come to church today. I'm already living this out. Notice what they put in parentheses in this book. I'm not making this up. Stick with me, 57 to 70s. They go on to say, some people who score this high either are greatly deceived or have become callous to their emotions as a way to suppress pain. <laughs> Bummer. Right. Not necessarily true for everybody. I'm just, I can't make that. That's right there in the book, right? Now you're like, oh, not only did I need to come to church, I better rewatch this, right? All right, 47 to 56, probably several people landed here, 47 to 56. The fear of rejection controls your responses rarely or only in certain situations. Again, the only major exceptions are those who are not honest with themselves. <laughs> All right, next one, 37 to 46, right here in the middle. There's five categories. Is number three. When you experience emotional problems, they may relate to a sense of rejection. Upon reflection, you will probably relate many of your previous decisions to this fear. Many of your future decisions will also be affected by the fear of rejection unless you take direct action to overcome it. Second to last bracket, 27 to 36, the fear of rejection forms a general backdrop to your life. There are probably few days that you are not affected in some way by this fear. Unfortunately, this robs you of the joy and peace your salvation is meant to bring. And then the lowest bracket, 0 to 26. Experiences of rejection dominate your memory and have probably resulted in a great deal of depression. These problems will remain until some definitive action is taken. In other words, this condition will not simply disappear Time alone cannot heal your pain. 
You need to experience, don't miss this, you need to experience deep healing in your self-concept, in your relationship with God, and in your relationships with others. This is why there's so much at stake. And it begins with how we see ourselves and how we properly understand how Jesus sees us. And so those who score low may be operating under the false belief that you are unworthy of love. And I hate this reality for you. And you, this is more than a 30-minute message on a Sunday morning. We're going all the way back to the way that you were raised. And unfortunately, you can't point to a time in your life where somebody actually loved you unconditionally. And so you've been wired ever since in your job and in your relationships because of the way that you grew up to try to earn the approval of others based on your performance because deep down, you believe that you're unlovable. And if someone doesn't love me as I am, I don't really have anything else to put out there. So that's why we put this false self on, this mask, where we try to perform ourselves into acceptance. And so your response to that belief will be the inclination, again, to perform your way into acceptance. And you've been trying to prove yourself your entire life. Because you, as you are, just hasn't been enough. But if your identity is grounded in God, and I hope that today everyone's is, if your identity is deeply grounded in God, then the first thing that should come to your mind is deeply loved. This is who you are. You are deeply loved. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Here it is. And that is what we are. That is what you are. And you didn't do anything. <laughs> that is what you are. It's the ultimate source of validation. Author Brendan Manning one time said, define yourself radically as beloved by God. He said, this is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. See, out of that love, out of that love will come a life of security, a life of contentedness and deep peace, your significance born out of not what you do, but what has already been done for you. He did all the work. And so our aim today is to live from that approval, not for approval. Again, it's exhausting, right? Waking up, okay, I hope the world accepts me, receives me today. I better do a good job at living life if that's going to be the case. No, we're already beginning our day, beginning our life from a position, a posture of God says, I am pleased with you, I love you, I approve of you as you are. And out of that peace and hopefully confidence, we can live life to the full. See, God loves you from beginning to end. He loves you from beginning to end. Your behavior cannot change that. So Eric and Jess, when they uh, had their, their new baby, here's, here's a picture, Nellie, came into the world a week and a half ago, and uh, Eric thought it'd be hilarious to reenact the Lion King pose there, so that's what's happening on the left. <laughs> what, 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 what a cute kid, right? What a cute girl. That's like a porcelain doll. It's just a beautiful girl. And so they, when she came into the world, obviously they were overwhelmed with joy, right? Many of you have experienced this, right? The anticipation. And when that baby is finally right in front of you, the sheer joy, instant, overwhelming love. And again, the baby hasn't even done anything yet. And when you have a baby, what do you typically say? She's perfect. She's perfect. Based on what? Right? That's kind of cynical, right? But think about it. Like, based, well, who, based on what? She, she just came into the world. What, she's already perfect? Yes. Why? Because she's yours. She's yours, and she's a beautiful gift. A child is loved from day one, from moment one. And how Eric and Jess looked at Nellie is how God has looked at you from the beginning, and it's how God looks at you today. That same look. <laughs> Sheer joy, overwhelming love. You might not believe it, but it's true. you got to claim that identity. 
God loves you from beginning to end. Now that day, about a week and a half ago, when, when I went to the hospital to, to see them and to meet Nellie, this has happened a few times before, and it, it always just kind of frames life in a just an instant moment for me, because after I met her for the first time, I literally drove from the hospital to the church here at the Burlington campus to meet with a family to plan a funeral. It's like, here is baby, right? Hours into life, not even a full day old, and, and here's the, the end of life. And so about a week and a half ago, about the same time that Nellie came into the world, we lost uh, an amazing man of God, part of our church family, uh, Donald Muirheide. And uh, just, just had such a passion for his family and for God. Here's a picture of Don and Vicki here at the Burlington campus. He would sit to my right uh, on the front row. Man, he's had cancer for the last 10 years. And so for a long time, he's been walking in, and he looks frail, but he's lifting his hands up in worship. Ten years ago, the doctors told him he had six months to live, ten years ago. And uh, so he obviously was welcoming that fight. And ten years ago, he had instant perspective of what mattered most in life. And so when I met with that family, literally driving from the hospital, you know, meeting someone who just entered life, and then talking to the family, grieving someone who has left this life, it was very clear that Don was deeply loved. He was deeply loved. And we had the funeral, and it's what a funeral celebration should be. And the love for Don that was described in that service was not born out of accomplishment, but out of relationship. What was celebrated was not achievement. He had a good career, but it was not, right? We didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about what he did in life. It was an achievement, but the gift of a life that was directed toward love for Christ and love for family. And so it was a crazy set of circumstances because of October of 2018, Don was sitting in my, my office and we, he knew uh, that he was short on time. And we talked about uh, his funeral service almost a year to the date. It ended up being uh, October of 2019, just a week and a half ago. And he said when he was diagnosed with cancer, it was an absolute wake-up call because he was spending so much time on his career and his work. And he's starting to have grandkids and he realized in a moment what life was all about. And that was reflected in the time that I met with the family in the funeral service. They literally said, Don made up for lost time. <laughs> Might not think that's possible, but when the family says it, it must be. And so today is the day where we frame our identities not through what we do, but who we are, who we belong to, so that it's reflected beyond us. See, when you grieve the loss of a loved one, like the family did of Don, what do you typically say at the funeral? You'll say something like, he wasn't perfect, we know that, but he was loved. He wasn't perfect, but he was loved. And so it is with God. When we are in Christ, when God looks at us, he sees a new creation. It's amazing how clear, direct scripture is on this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece. You ever feel like a masterpiece? I don't. God says it. He's spoken that into your life. Another translation says workmanship. It's handcrafted you, uniquely designed you for his purpose. You're a masterpiece. Goes on, he's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he has planned for us. He planned for us long ago. So I want to ask again, how does God feel about you? Well, don't pay attention to merely your feelings. Claim this truth. How does God feel about you? See, again, this goes beyond us. Right? So I want to wrap this up like we did last week. What's, what's at stake is not just properly understanding how God sees us, how he feels about us, but understanding what's at stake beyond us. Your answer to the question, how does God feel about you, determines the way that you live, the way that you interact with God, and the way that you interact with others. Here's what I mean. Some of the most bitter people in life, deep down, believe that God resents them. 
the overflow of our lives, if we believe that, there's, that God resents us, we will be bitter people. Some of the angriest people in life deep down believe that God is holding out on them. This, this mentality that everyone else is winning at life and they're the only ones not getting what they want, kind of this victim mentality. So that comes out as anger. Some of the most judgmental people in life perceive God as this constant judge waiting to put the hammer down on their life as soon as they mess up. That's your perception of God. Some of the most unloving people at their deepest core believe that they themselves are unlovable. We have to connect these dots. Why is it that we're acting these, these ways oftentimes? Why do I find myself bitter, resentful, angry, unloving toward people? Well, I better understand that at my core, I'm not in tune with the God of the universe. Now, he unconditionally loves me. I need to receive that, own it, so that it's properly reflected to the world around me. See, the opposite of that, those who properly understand the unconditional love of God will naturally be more loving and accepting of others. And, and we, we, we love to be around these people. They kind of have this everyday lightness about them. <laughs> you just kind of immediately feel at ease, like, wow, I can just be myself around this person. I don't feel like I have to be on, so to speak, like they're judging my every word or behavior. It's because these people, their identity is born out of who they are, not what they do. And so it gives us freedom, permission to live out of who we truly are as well. And those kind of people properly understand one essential truth. It's this. Life is not a performance with the goal of acceptance. Life is not a performance with the goal of acceptance. Instead, life is a gift. Life is a gift of grace born out of the fact that we have already been accepted. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, as God's chosen people, you ever felt chosen? As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that's your identity, but notice what comes out of your identity, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Man, I'd love to be described that way. How can that happen? I properly understand who I am in God. If you believe you are loved, you will live like you are loved. The more we understand how deeply loved we are, the more loving we will be toward the world around us. A world is full of people desperately searching for significance, walking around exhausted trying to earn the fleeting approval and love of those around them. And this calling at hand for each of us, it's to live from approval, not for approval. God already approves of you because he made you and has plans for you, and that will never change. Your life matters because you are loved by God. You are. And so I want to spend just the next few minutes as we just kind of receive the song that the, the band is going to lead us in at both campuses. I want these words to just fall on us because we need to absorb this reality. We need to spend this intentional time with God. Maybe just choose to let him in, maybe some of you for the very first time. And what, one of the lines in the song that really landed on me is simply this. It says, you love me as you find me. You love me as you find me. So as we spend this time, right, in introspection and reflection, right, we're all called to take a next step, and so I want you to prayerfully consider what that next step is, and at, at both campuses, after the service is over, uh, seek one of us out and uh, say, hey, I'm done trying to live life on my own. I want to choose Jesus as my Savior. Maybe you need to seek prayer and allow someone to just pray over you and spend this time in the trenches and the valley that you find yourself that God doesn't mean for you to be there, but you need somebody to help pull you out. And so I want to read a quote from Henry Nouwen, and then uh, pray for us, and then we'll, we'll spend some time just allowing these, the words of, these, of this song to just land softly on us. Henry Nouwen once said this, 
God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is a fundamental truth of your identity. This is who you are, whether you feel it or not. You belong to God from eternity to eternity. Life is just a little opportunity for you during a few years to say, I love you too. Let's pray. God, as we uh, sit here today, trying to settle ourselves, may we be done with the shifting sand, the fragile foundation, and just rest in you. God, may every single person at both campuses sense your gladness about their existence and that we can find deep joy and peace in knowing we belong to you. And being able to call you Father is absolutely enough for us to be able to be significant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I've been strong and I've been broken within a moment. I've been faithful and I've been reckless at every event. I've held everything together and watched the shatter. I've stood tall and I have crumbled in the same breath. I have wrestled and I have trembled towards surrender. Chased my heart adrift and drifted home again. Under blessing till I've been desperate to find redemption. And every time I turn around, Lord, you're still